Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. You're listening to DNA ID. Brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Citizen Detective, and Campus Killings. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Around 5 p.m. on Saturday, December 19, 1998, a 911 call came into the Broward County, Florida Sheriff's Office. The male caller reported that he had found a body. He was out boating in the Everglades with three boys, and one of them needed to use the bathroom. They disembarked, and the man was showing the boy where he could go in privacy. They walked into the sawgrass and weeds taller than a person, and there, among the marsh rushes, face down, With her feet facing the man lay a half-nude woman. The man turned right around and marched the boy following him out of the weeds. Then he turned back, second-guessing himself, and returned to the body. It occurred to him that maybe she wasn't dead, that he could help her. He said he noted that the body still retained some color. It seemed she hadn't been dead for very long. But she was, indeed, deceased. They got back in their boat and went to find a phone. This was on the edge of the Everglades, near 5400 U.S. Highway 27, a mile north of I-75 in western Broward County, Florida. The caller and his family were boating on a canal on the west side of U.S. 27 when they made the little pit stop at a little used boat ramp and dock. The area they pulled up to was accessible by car via a dirt road, but there was nothing around there but an airboat park and a truck stop. Deputy Tom Sheridan was first to respond. One look at the partially clothed woman told him they were looking at a homicide victim, and the case was on. I spoke with Detective Zach Scott of the Broward County Sheriff's Office, who solved this case. I asked him if he believed whoever dumped the woman at that location intended for her never to be found. He said absolutely yes. The chances of her being found before she decomposed and or Everglades animals disarticulated her were slim to none. I always marvel in these instances at the amount of pure chance involved in discoveries like this. The killer was no doubt that he was permanently disposing of his prey. After all, who would go tromping through this itchy, scratchy, swampy, buggy, alligator-y, python-y, overgrown area in the middle of nowhere? But within less than two days, someone did. If that little boy hadn't had to go to the bathroom, and if the 911 caller had waded into the weeds even ten yards further downstream— 
he would likely never have seen what he saw. But he did, and there she was. Detective Scott told me that this location meant that the killer was likely someone familiar with the area, a local. The woman in the marsh was wearing maroon underwear, which were pulled down around her thighs. Black socks, very worn, bright red Keds-style sneakers with a large hole in the left heel, and a red, black, and white striped members-only shirt with royal blue sleeves that read Sport Team Sport. On top of that, she wore a black tank top with white biker-style artwork containing skulls and a biker dude that read Rock City News. According to the now-defunct magazine's website, Rock City News was a Los Angeles-based local rock magazine, which circulated from 1986 to 2009. The woman also wore a royal blue tank top, a red lace bra, and red stud-style earrings. She had no pants or skirt on, and none were found. But Detective Scott told me that based on the crime scene photos and evidence, Broward County investigators believed that the Jane Doe was assaulted and killed where she was found. There were no drag marks on the ground, and there was no evidence of dragging on her body. There was no blood trail, but there was significant blood on her person. The muddy ground near her body was disturbed. What had happened to this woman? An autopsy determined that the Jane Doe, who had no identification on her, had died from manual strangulation. The medical examiner postulated that she had been dead no more than three days, probably less. Detective Scott told me that he believes she was alive when she was brought to the location where she was found. She was savaged and killed there on the night before the boater found her body. Her corpse was damp with Florida humidity and marshy surroundings, but as the boater noted, she did not appear to have been deceased long. Aside from the strangulation marks, her body also bore signs of a severe beating, with massive reddish-black bruises on her body indicating that she'd been alive when the beating was inflicted. And bruising and trauma to her genital region showed that she'd been violently raped. Vaginal swabs were collected, but no semen or DNA was detected. It was 1998, and DNA analysis was the standard, but it was not nearly as sophisticated as it is today. Very fortuitously, the Broward County Sheriff's Office decided to maintain those vaginal swabs in evidence. Jane Doe also had possibly recently had surgery to remove a cyst, although that was just a theory posited by the medical examiner to explain a fresh wound on her abdomen. Finally, the autopsy determined that Jane Doe was possibly malnourished, that she was labeled emaciated, and she had borne at least one child. Fingerprints obtained from Jane Doe matched none in the law enforcement fingerprint database. Broward County authorities released a description and sketch of Jane Doe, hoping that someone would be able to identify her. They described her as approximately 30 to 40 years of age, about 5 foot 5 inches tall, weighing 116 pounds. Her curly hair was brown with gray streaks, medium length. Her eyes were brown. Photos of her unique shirt with the Rock City News logo on it were shown at the truck stop near where she was found, but no one recognized her there. Her case went cold, and she remained a Jane Doe. She was buried in an unmarked grave in a cemetery owned and maintained by the county. In 2008, Jane Doe's case was featured by the Broward County Sheriff's Office in a media push to promote a new website the Sheriff's Office had established to help them identify John and Jane Doe's within the county. Forty cases of unidentified human remains were featured on this website. Most of these cases were homicides. Jane Doe's case was also entered into NCIC and NamUs. More than a decade passed. In 2020, 
The BCSO was investigating a series of murders believed to have been committed by Roberto Wagner Fernandez. Three murder victims had been found between June 2000 and August 2001, two in Broward County and one in Miami. The women were Kimberly Dietz Livesey, Sia Demas, and Jessica Good. Jessica and Kimberly were found slain and stuffed in suitcases left on roadsides. Sia was stabbed and thrown into Biscayne Bay. The crimes were believed to be related, as the killer had left fingerprints at two of the crime scenes, prints that led 2005 investigators to Fernandez. He had been fingerprinted following the 1996 shooting death of his wife, for which he had been acquitted. Apparently, Fernandez had fled to Florida after he was declared not guilty because his murdered wife's family hired a hitman to take him out. In Florida, he killed Kimberly, Jessica, and Sia, and when the cops came calling after getting a hit to his prince, he fled back to his native Brazil, which does not have an extradition treaty with the U.S. In 2011, it was learned that male DNA left on all three victims, Sia, Jessica, and Kimberly, was consistent. Investigators traveled to Brazil to arrest Fernandez, but learned that in December 2005, he had left for Argentina in a small Cessna he was piloting, and it had crashed in Paraguay. Feeling that this story was a little too convenient for Fernandez, the Florida investigators tracked down his supposed gravesite and dug up the body inside. Sure enough, it was Fernandez, and his DNA definitely matched to the killer of Jessica, Kimberly, and Sia. By now, it was 2021, and Broward investigators were concerned that Fernandez, a confirmed serial killer, might have more Florida victims. They turned to Jane Doe, who had been slain just two years before Fernandez's first known victim in the county. The M.O., strangulation with a sexual component, was similar, and Fernandez's three known victims had been found near U.S. 27, which is the highway closest to where Jane Doe was found. But the investigators still didn't know who Jane Doe was, much less her killer. It was time to identify her and see if they could link her to Fernandez. The first step was to try to obtain Jane Doe's DNA. Despite protocols calling for biological samples to be retained from Doe's who are interred, no standard for this Jane Doe could be located. So they turned to the samples obtained at her autopsy. The rape kit conducted back in 1998 had detected no DNA, but of course, that was 23 years earlier. Retesting the vaginal swab samples in evidence with modern DNA testing technology yielded unexpected results. They were able to obtain Jane Doe's DNA profile from epithelial cells contained in the vaginal swabs taken at her autopsy. But there was other DNA in the samples as well, single-source male DNA obtained from epithelial cells. It was not Fernandez's. Someone else had killed this Jane Doe. Unfortunately, neither Jane Doe's DNA nor a family member's DNA was in the CODIS Unidentified Human Remains database. In 2022, the BSCSO made an open and unsolved video showing the Jane Doe crime scene, the 911 call, and Detective Zach Scott requesting information from the public on the identity of Jane Doe. Forensic sketch artist Fernando Gahata, a retired Broward Sheriff's captain, sketched the victim using crime scene and autopsy photos and making an educated guess about what she would look like with her eyes open. The sketch was also released to the public, but no tips led to her identity. Finally, they decided to use forensic genealogy to determine who Jane Doe was. 
They provided Parabon Nanolabs with the vaginal swab taken at her autopsy, the one that contained both her DNA and that of an unknown male. Parabon was able to prepare a SNP profile for Jane Doe. The DNA showed that her ancestry was mostly European and a small amount of West African. Then Parabon uploaded the SNP profile to FTDNA and GEDmatch. They issued their initial genealogical assessment report to the FDLE's FIG unit, which took the information Parabon provided about the initial matches and conducted a genealogy analysis. Unfortunately, the FDLE's FIG unit, which stands for Forensic Investigative Genetic Genealogy, declined to provide me with any details about the genealogical analysis in this case. Senior crime intelligence analyst Debbie Abney did tell me that they found a very close DNA relative in the database, but that the DNA relative shared DNA with only a couple of other matches, and those amounts were very small, so it was tricky trying to determine which side of this top DNA relative's tree to focus on. They narrowed it down to one family tree, but at the ancestral level, so plans were made to obtain reference samples from an individual in upstate New York and one in north-central Florida. But before that was necessitated, Parabon obtained more specific information, allowing the FDLE analyst to narrow it down to three sisters, Nancy, Virginia, and Eileen Troopner. Nancy and Virginia were accounted for, but Eileen had disappeared in 1998 and had never been heard from again. Now they knew why. Eileen Mary Troopner was born in January 1957 in Puerto Rico. Her mother was of Hispanic descent, which aligned with what the genetic history had indicated. As an adult, Eileen worked for the government, and then she moved to Florida so she could better learn English. She married a man named A.J. Betancourt, and yes, I noted the last name, in Florida in May 1992. After the birth of the couple's first child, Eileen suffered from severe postpartum depression and was hospitalized for months. She was released after she was deemed to be significantly improved, but a second baby soon followed, and its birth sent her into a downward spiral and her family life unraveled. Eileen was unstable and a potential harm to herself and her children. Children and Family Services was involved, and she was deemed a potential danger to the children's well-being. So her husband attained... Sorry, oh my God, I cannot talk today. Children and Family Services was involved, and she was deemed a potential danger to her children's well-being, so her husband obtained custody of the kids. Interestingly, he did not file a petition for dissolution of marriage until July of 1999, when, unbeknownst to him, Eileen had been dead for seven months. It was clear from the court documents, including an affidavit of diligent search and an affidavit of service by publication, that A.J. had tried to find Eileen and had given up when she failed to respond. His petition to dissolve the marriage was granted in September 1999. In the few years leading up to when she vanished in December 1998, there are address records in the Fort Lauderdale area for Eileen, but she never stayed at any one address very long, and Detective Scott tells me it's likely she ended up on the streets. It's unknown how she supported herself, but we do know that she lost a significant amount of weight, as photos of her in happier times show a round face and a healthy body. By December 1998, the medical examiner described her as emaciated, and her sneakers had holes in them and the sole was worn completely smooth from wear. We can only guess at what struggles Eileen underwent as she tried to navigate her postpartum issues. Her sister Nancy told the media that she tried to get Eileen to return to Puerto Rico to live with her, but Eileen declined 
preferring to stay in the Florida area in hopes of maintaining a relationship with her children. She stayed in contact with her sisters as she bounced around from place to place and then disappeared at age 41. Eileen's sisters were very concerned about her disappearance. From their homes in Puerto Rico, they contacted Florida authorities, but were told they would need to come in to file a missing persons report. They hired a PI to find Eileen, and he told them that he checked hospitals, morgues, and jails, and followed leads on Eileen's trail, but he could not find her. We have no way of knowing whether this PI actually did the work he claimed to do or not. And we know the PI did not file a missing persons report on Eileen either, something he definitely should have done, and something that might have saved Eileen's family years of heartache associated with not knowing where their beloved sister was. Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Once the genealogist's theory about Eileen's identity was established, Detective Scott met with the family and told them what he suspected, that Eileen had been dead since December 1998. He told Fox 13, quote, The upside is you're able to give them some answers. The downside is that you have to tell them she was the victim of a murder, and it's not the answer they wanted, end quote. In order to confirm the identification, direct DNA comparison testing of Eileen's son was performed, and the results showed that Jane Doe and the son shared levels of DNA consistent with a parent-child relationship. No additional details were released. Broward County Sheriff Gregory Tony held a press conference announcing Eileen's identity. He said, For 20-something years, there has been no closure, no justice for who now is identified as Eileen Troopner. That was our victim. She is no longer faceless. She is no longer nameless. That is important for us as a community to have that name, and it's important for the family members, end quote. Nancy Troopner tearfully addressed the media at the press conference. She said her heart was broken by the news of her sister's brutal murder. She described her sister as a Christian person, someone who was calm, quiet, and kind. She lamented her sister's slang, saying, quote, she did not deserve that. It hurts like it was yesterday. Meanwhile, the Broward County authorities were already well on their way toward making a case against Eileen's suspected killer. After they obtained the not-Fernandez male DNA from Eileen's sample, they entered the unknown male STR profile into CODIS. Remember, they had not had a male DNA sample to submit up until this time. It was only when they initiated modern testing to determine who Jane Doe was that any male DNA was detected. And guess what? They got a hit to a killer right there in the Sunshine State. His name was Lucius Boyd. 
His DNA was in CODIS because he had been charged with raping two women in 1997, and he'd been convicted of murdering yet another woman in 1998, two weeks before Eileen Troopner's slaying. After he was arrested for the 1997 rapes, his DNA was entered into the state DNA database. It was entered into the NDIS, the national database, in around 2002, after he was convicted of the other 1998 murder. Broward County detectives were thrilled to learn that Lucius Boyd was sitting right there on death row. They went to talk to him, armed with a search warrant, empowering them to collect Boyd's DNA to conduct a direct comparison to that left behind by the unknown male on Jane Doe, whose name they didn't know yet at this time as the genealogy was still going on. It was a match. Lucius Boyd refused to talk to BCSO Detective Zach Scott about Eileen's case. He would not tell them who Jane Doe was or admit to having anything to do with her death. So the genealogy proceeded, and it led the investigators to the name Eileen Troopner, and DNA from her family verified her identity. Although the investigators were hoping that the convicted murderer on death row would own up to the second murder they had linked to him and would provide details about how he and Eileen crossed paths, they didn't need his confession. The DNA spoke for itself. Charges for murder in the first degree and sexual battery were filed by the state's attorney for the 17th Judicial Circuit against Boyd on November 30th of last year, and he was indicted by a grand jury for Eileen's murder on November 29th of 2023. He was arrested on January 11th, and he pleaded not guilty at his arraignment on January 16th. Based on the court documents, it appears Boyd plans to put up a vigorous defense. Detective Scott told me they're working to put together an ironclad case against Boyd, gathering information on his whereabouts and timeline in preparation for his prosecution for Eileen's murder. On January 24th, the state's attorney's office filed a notion of intent to seek the death penalty for Lucius Boyd. The judge on the case recused himself after the defense filed a motion pointing out that he had a conflict. He had worked in the homicide unit at the state's attorney's office and had prosecuted the previous case against Boyd, for which he already got the death penalty. As of right now, a new judge has been appointed, and the Eileen Troopner homicide case is headed to trial. Detective Scott told CBS of Boyd, quote, he's a predator, he sees his opportunity, end quote. What he meant was, over and over again, Lucius Boyd took advantage of women in vulnerable positions. We know this because of his record, and because of what he did to Donia DaCosta, the reason he is on death row. In 1998, Boyd was working as a handyman for the Hope Outreach Ministry Church in Lauderhill, and he was driving the church van with the word Hope emblazoned on the side when he came across a young woman at a gas station. On the night of December 4th, 21-year-old pediatric nursing student Donia DaCosta had worked late and then attended a midnight church service where she sang in the choir. She then went to drive to her Deerfield Beach home and ran out of gas after exiting I-95 on Hillsborough Beach Boulevard. She had a small gas can in her vehicle, so she grabbed it and walked to a Texaco station a block away. This was around 2 o'clock in the morning on December 5th. At the Texaco, Donia was seen by a female attendant and another witness filling the gas can and talking to a black man driving the church van with hope on it. He was overheard asking her how far she had to go. Then she was seen getting into the van, and it drove away. Donia never made it home that night. Her family found her car on the highway and flyered the whole area, and the two witnesses who had spoken to her at the Texaco told the police about their interactions. Donia's nude body was found two days later, lying in a warehouse back alley, 
wrapped in a shower curtain liner and two sheets, and with her head covered by a purple duffel bag and two black trash bags. I'm reading here from the court record, quote, at trial, it was stipulated that DaCosta died due to a penetrating head wound and that the bruising on her head was consistent with, but not exclusive to, the faceplate of a reciprocating saw. Wounds to her chest, arms, and head were consistent with, but not exclusive to, a Torx brand Torx screwdriver, and she had defensive wounds on her arms and hands. DaCosta had 36 superficial wounds on her chest, four on the right side of her head, and 12 on her right hand some being consistent with defensive wounds and some, four, being consistent with bite marks. One fatal wound to the head perforated the skull and penetrated DaCosta's brain. There was bruising to her vagina, end quote. The brutality inflicted on Donia DaCosta is simply unfathomable. It wasn't hard for police to find Donia's killer, though. They already had the witnesses who had seen her at the gas station getting into the Hope van. Police detectives soon spotted the van, and Reverend Frank Lloyd, the van's owner, told them that on the weekend of Donia's murder, the van was being driven by the church handyman, Lucius Boyd. Reverend Lloyd had hoped to turn Boyd into a minister, but it seemed that Boyd preferred the dark side. He exploited his access to the van and used it to lure his victim to her death. Boyd didn't have an alibi for the night of the murder. He was identified by the witnesses who had seen him talking to Donia. He had been driving the church van on the night of the slaying. The bite mark on Donia's body matched up with Boyd's teeth. Blood from Donia was found inside Boyd's apartment. And DNA from Boyd matched DNA from the semen left on Donia's inner thigh and under her nails. Oh, and then this. Again from the court record, quote, Reverend Lloyd also stated that when he left the van with Boyd, various tools owned by the church, including a set of Torx brand screwdrivers and a reciprocating saw, were in the van, as well as a purple laundry bag that the pastor used to deliver his laundry to the cleaners. When Reverend Lloyd returned on December 15th, he discovered that the screwdrivers, the saw, and the laundry bag were missing. End quote. There was even more evidence against Boyd, but you get the point. Boyd was tried, convicted, and sentenced to death in 2002 for Donia's murder, armed kidnapping, and sexual battery. But she is far from his only suspected murder victim. Now we know he also killed Eileen Troopner just two weeks after he killed Donia, and he is believed to have killed several others. What do we know about Lucius Boyd? A lot of this bioinformation about Boyd is taken from the article Lady Killer, written by Bob Norman for BrowardPalmBeach.com in 1999. Boyd was born on March 22, 1959, to parents James and Corrine Boyd, and grew up in Fort Lauderdale. His well-known, wealthy family owned a lucrative local chain of funeral homes that had endured for three generations and provided employment to Boyd and his 12 siblings. Boyd was a mortician's helper there. He was also known to do crack and fathered at least eight children with several different women, two of whom he married, and almost all of whom he ended up opposing in court. He was said to be a charmer, a good-looking, large guy who attracted women like flies. He was eventually fired from the family business and took the job as a handyman for the Hope Outreach Ministries while living at his family's property on and off. He also worked as a commercial truck driver. He had run-ins with law enforcement that never resulted in significant charges, even though the allegations against him included choking his wife into unconsciousness, domestic violence against two other women, raping a teenager, choking and raping a family friend, raping another woman at knife point, and stabbing the brother of one of his girlfriends to death. What's incredible is his limited amount of jail time given his record. 
1993, he was charged with second-degree murder for stabbing a man named Roderick Bullard to death in an argument over possession of a Buick. He was acquitted after a jury trial. In May 1997, he was charged with sexual battery of the teenager that I mentioned above, but again, he was acquitted after a jury trial. Same for two other cases of sexual battery later that same year. Again and again, Lucius Boyd avoided the consequences for his actions until his luck ran out with the DaCosta case. When detectives arrested him for Donnie's murder after the DNA came back a match, Boyd asked, what took you so long to catch me? Investigators started to suspect Boyd had many more victims throughout southern Florida and possibly utilized his family's funeral home to dispose of bodies. Detective Scott told me that he suspects Boyd used the crematoriums there to get rid of the evidence of his crimes and that state regulations on record-keeping regarding bodies in, ashes out, aren't enforced super well. If this is correct, then some of Boyd's victims will almost certainly remain unknown. One of these suspected victims was 19-year-old Patrice Alston, who was last seen getting into Boyd's green Mazda on June 28, 1998, for a trip to Winter Haven. She has never been seen again. Then there was Melissa Floyd. According to Bob Norman's article I referenced earlier, Melissa was a 24-year-old crack addict who was homeless and known to frequent the area near the Boyd funeral home. Her naked body was found in August 13, 1997, in some tall grass right next to a guardrail on I-95 in Palm Beach County. She'd been stabbed to death and apparently thrown out of a car onto the roadside. Boyd was the prime suspect in this case. Melissa's ID card was found and turned in by Boyd family members on the grounds of the Boyd funeral home after she disappeared. But police had no physical evidence proving that Boyd killed her. According to a 2004 article in the Sun Sentinel by Shannon O'Boy, Fort Lauderdale police say Boyd, 44, is a suspect in the disappearance of 25-year-old Danielle Zaycott, but they do not have the evidence to charge him. Zaycott, a graphic designer, ran out to a Winn-Dixie supermarket late one night in February 1999 and was never seen again, end quote. Her father petitioned the governor, Jeb Bush, at the time to commute Boyd's death sentence in hopes that Boyd would one day agree to spill his secrets. And Danielle's family, Patrice Olsen's family, Melissa Floyd's family, and possibly several others would have answers. Detective Scott told me that his agency is hoping to take investigative action on three to four cases they suspect Boyd was involved in. But he would not be surprised if the number of cases he's responsible for is much higher. The number might never be known because of the crematorium issue. The cases they have taken on are solvable cases in which they have a body to work with, or where Boyd has a connection to the missing person or witnesses can link him to a missing person. At the press conference announcing that Lucius Boyd allegedly murdered Eileen Troopner, Broward County Sheriff Gregory Tony said, quote, Lucius Boyd's indictment for Eileen's homicide is possible due to the collaborative efforts of BCSO cold case detectives, crime lab analysts, and crime scene investigators. Now, Eileen's family can put an end to decades of living with uncertainty, while detectives continue their mission with one thing in mind. Justice has no expiration date. As of now, justice still eludes Eileen Schupner. Even though we now have answers in her case that we didn't have just a few short months ago, who she was and who killed her, there is still a lot we don't know. What was Eileen up to in those few years when she was living in Broward County after she and her husband separated? How did she support herself? Why did no one other than her sisters ever notice that she was missing? And how did she cross paths with the monster that is Lucius Boyd?
It's a mystery. But somehow Eileen ended up in Boyd's vehicle. Detective Scott believes she and Boyd both arrived at the spot where she was killed in Boyd's car, and Eileen was probably already under duress. She was taken into the rushes and severely beaten and strangled. Boyd didn't leave any detected semen behind, so there are questions about whether this attack was sexually motivated. But Eileen's lack of clothing on her lower half, pulled down panties, and visible trauma to her genital region strongly indicate that she was sexually assaulted. And cells from Boyd were found in her vaginal swabs. The question is, had Boyd smartened up after his 1997 rape trials about how his DNA could be used against him? He knew his DNA was entered into the state DNA database as a result of those rapes. Did he get sexual gratification somehow without ejaculating on Eileen? He made sure not to leave semen behind on her, and he clearly attempted to avoid leaving semen on Donia DaCosta. A small amount was found on her inner thigh. The thought is terrifying, because if so, then he could have an untold number of victims prior to his arrest in 1999 that we will never know about. It makes you wonder how many killers like Boyd are sitting in prison somewhere knowing that their secrets have not been uncovered. And remember that the initial DNA testing on Eileen's rape kit in 1998 detected no DNA. So cases that have not been subjected to retesting using modern standards may not have been attributed to their offenders. Thank you so much to Broward County Sheriff's Detective Zach Scott for answering my barrage of questions about this case. Recently, I let listeners know about a new benefit available to them called an Abjack Insider subscription that's available through Apple Podcasts. An Abjack Insider subscription will give listeners ad-free access to every bit of DNA ID content published, both past episodes and future episodes. It will also give you benefits like early access and bonus content. Head over to Apple Podcasts and click on the DNA ID show page or the Abjack Entertainment channel to start a free trial. Thanks for listening to this episode of DNA ID. If you'd like to listen to the show ad-free and help support the show in the process, please head over to patreon.com slash DNA ID. And if you're interested in some fun DNA ID merch, visit the store at customizedgirl.com slash S slash DNA ID podcast. To contact the show, please email us at DNA ID podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on social media at DNA ID podcast on Instagram at DNA ID podcast on Twitter or on Facebook at facebook.com slash DNA ID podcast. Finally, if you want to visit our website, go to dnaidpodcast.com. You'll be able to get all the episodes of the show, leave comments on episodes that I can respond to, and you can even leave voicemails. You'll get all the latest news about the show and important updates. Find links to our social media, merch, and a lot more. It's really your one-stop shop for everything DNA ID. DNA ID is written, researched, and hosted by me, Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by me and Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Music by Connor Betancourt. Check out our other collaborative podcasts, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, and Beyond Bizarre True Crime.